Hey, it's Greg Brady. Welcome to the Toronto Today podcast for Tuesday, December 7th. Well, we didn't touch much on COVID and Omicron as uh, much as we will in this particular episode. Some of it's about the coverage of it. Some of it is about the fact that things are leaning in a positive direction, at least in terms of the severeness of the variant and the lack of illness and lack of hospitalizations and ICU visits we're seeing in South Africa proper. So we'll talk about that. Anthony Fury from the Toronto Sun on the show. Lori Campbell as well. We wanted to talk to her. We go out to Saskatchewan to talk to her um, about the residential school records that the government will now release. But the federal government's had a long time to do this. So we'll get into that as well. I understand there has to be a skepticism. I haven't. Uh, inside me that's a little skeptical that there's been a lot of time to sanitize these records and they're so important to give us answers of uh, the questions we have about what happened when and to be honest who so it's all here toronto today starts now let me start here uh yesterday you may have noticed uh well you know that we're all gearing up to go to the uh, olympics and we mentioned on the show that uh sweden's potential top goalie robin lenner is not going to go to the Olympics. And he announced yesterday, I'm not going to the Olympics. And uh, he said there are mental health concerns on his part. Now, Leonard has a documented history with having some mental health issues. So it's easily understood that uh, that it may be a stressful. Look, everybody's uh, stressed. My wife's going to Beijing, um, leaving in late. She's gone 21, 22 days. She's stressed. I'm stressed. Um, my kids are probably the least stressed because they might sleep in and, and fake absences and illnesses from school it's a dangerous year to do that i think we're all well aware of that it's harder to play ferris bueller than it used to be uh in COVID times but that still may happen for them so yesterday with the olympics in mind china accused the u.s of violating the olympic spirit mm-hmm. china olympic spirit mm-hmm. to you know peace love and togetherness y'all all that kind of thing uh, friendly competition. Mm-hmm. They uh, because the United States announced a diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Winter Games. It's a bit of a feud happening here, and today has a lot of layers of that. With Biden meeting Putin today, and we're going to talk to Marcus Kolga about that. Nobody better, really, um, in in the GTA to talk to about uh, U.S. Russia relations uh, than Marcus Kolga. But Marcus has told me in the past he thinks we shouldn't go. He thinks Canada shouldn't go to the Olympics. And speaking of being a little boy and asking for ACDC songs on the radio at 2 o'clock, I remember it mildly well when we didn't go to Moscow, when Canada was part of a U.S.-led boycott by Jimmy Carter to not go to the Summer Olympics in Moscow because the Soviets had invaded Afghanistan. It was a simpler world back then. Like, that, that's... That was the big issue, was the Soviets in Afghanistan. Billy Joel put it in a line in, in there in We Didn't Start the Fire. There's a lot of inaccurate stuff in that song, but that's true. Soviets were, were in Afghanistan. So I find that quite humorous. I find China humorous to begin with, almost clown-like with uh, some of their uh, outrage. They've, they, they've kind of taken the full outrage that exists like on social media and in some circles and people all getting shrill and hysterical and they've politicized it. I don't know how they did it so well, but like on, honestly, people should research this hundreds of years from now and say, how could China commit such atrocities against humanity in their own country and against their own people and be the most sensitive snowflakes in the universe? But they are and they do. So um, 
This is what foreign minister spokesperson Zhao Lijian told reporters at a daily briefing. No, we're not going to play it because um, less than 100% of our audience will understand it. It's in Chinese. But here's what he says. The boycott, quote, seriously violates the principle of political neutrality of sports established by the Olympic Charter and runs counter to the Olympic motto, quote, more united. He says China will fight back with resolute countermeasures. But there are any details there. Um, the uh, U.S. is attempting to interfere with the Beijing Winter Olympics. Oh, that's interesting. Well, they're going to send their athletes and they're going to compete. And hopefully they're also going to kick your butt, China. Um, but out of ideological prejudice and based on lies and rumors. Mm-hmm. Um, so Canada has a call to make here. They really do. Uh, by the way, Zhao finished his statement. The U.S. will pay a price for its practices. You may stay tuned for follow-ups, which is, again, a great teaser. This guy should host a show, uh, you know, uh, Zhao in the morning, uh, 9 to noon. I don't, want, I don't want Kelly to go anywhere, but good heavens, Zhao in the morning has some potential. You may stay tuned for follow-ups. That way to hold the audience's attention. Zhao, uh, the foreign ministry spokesperson. Aaron O'Toole has said this before. This is a really interesting call for uh, Justin Trudeau, and I don't think it is. I think it's a patently obvious call, and there's a couple obvious reasons why. But Aaron O'Toole a couple weeks ago said this about what we should consider about the Beijing Olympics. Yes, Canada should be considering a boycott. And I've said we're going to be watching the decisions very closely. Beijing has to know that the world is watching the genocide taking place against the Uyghurs. They've watched what's been happening in Hong Kong and the situation with Mr. Schellenberg, Mr. Spaver, and Mr. Kovrig. The world is watching, and we're proud of our athletes. We're celebrating, but we also have to recognize the, the actions of, of a country that wants to host a games to bring people together. And we'll, we'll have to think long and hard on whether we reward a country like that with the games. They've already got it. There's not much we can do about it. That time for action was probably, in essence, a year ago, and there were feasible methods by which you could move the games probably as recently as a year ago. But it's a bullet train right now. It can't be stopped. I don't even think COVID can stop it. I don't think any, um, you know, real or imagined fears about Omicron can stop it. But it's got people quite worried. It's got people concerned that are going there uh, necessarily. There are journalists that have been highly critical, not just in Canada, uh, but in the United States, the UK, France. Um, there's been a lot of criticism about China. And a lot of these people are going to land on Chinese soil and expect to be, you know, treated like, I don't know, a normal citizen, okay, um, for 21, 22 days when they get there. Uh, Zhao, our friend, called on the U.S. Uh, to stop politicizing sports. But China would have never wanted the Olympics in the first place if sports wasn't already politicized. He's got that wrong. And he probably knows that. I mean, a lot of people steering you know driving the car in china period no they've got it wrong they just don't care they don't care is this about covid no it isn't no it's not um there are still a lot of questions and we'll never potentially get full transparency you do realize that um in in addition to the tennis player peng shui who we're just not sure i mean i don't know what more assurances we can get until we see her on non-chinese soil that all is well in her world and she's not being coerced or, um, you know, programmed to say certain things. 
I, I, I don't know what when it gets to that point. I also know this. I don't think that it's gotten to the point. I think we've gotten past in COVID times when it started, where we worried about how um, how people would respond when it came. I, nobody looks at a person of Chinese descent in Toronto, in Ottawa or Hamilton and blames them for the behavior of their government or government officials. That's not a thing. But you should feel free to speak up, whoever you are, whoever you are, and turn and and turn on your own, you know, sit and turn on your own government sometimes. I'm doing it right now by saying we've been a little bit spineless about China. We have. We went to the G7 uh, in Scotland. This is long before COP26 in Scotland. And we had basically the softest statement of those seven nations and of those seven leaders about who and what China is and are right now and, and probably will continue to be. What stops it? I don't have a clue. But, uh, yeah, it's a really interesting decision to make. And I think it's a no brainer. But I've been wrong before about we'll do, what we'll do about China. I've been very wrong uh, before with what we'll do potentially about China. Um, speaking of Omicron, you'll hear this morning that there's a case in a Toronto school at Precious Blood, uh, which is in Scarborough. Someone has been diagnosed with having the Omicron variant uh, in school. Um, you can do what you want to do with that information, and clearly this was going to happen at some point in time. Omicron is in 53 countries right now, and the last time I checked was about eight hours ago, so it could be a couple or several more. We don't know if the case is in a student or staff member. What started to annoy me last week was that we didn't learn any lessons whatsoever from the start of COVID. And, and I understand now that the lesson, I'm, I'm not criticizing it then because we would almost document who has it, where they come from, where they connect with, because we didn't know about transmissibility then. So those things mattered in that context. What flight were they on? What countries did they stop in? All that stuff really did matter because you were worried once it came to your community about how transmissible it was. And then those fears calmed down a little bit. And we stopped doing that, not just because we realized there's not much stop to the spread of this or not much containment to the spread. OK, and, and we also realized stop washing your groceries. Uh, you don't have to wear gloves at a gas pump. All these things you can. You can if you like, but it certainly wasn't going to do a, a terrible amount. We started using the phrase hygiene theater. I think the first time I used it on the radio was maybe May of 2020. We're still doing, as you know. And I know a lot of hygiene theatery things. We just are. I'd love for that to stop. I'd love to go to Rexall and not talk to somebody behind, like not just a, a small plexiglass shield, but it's a plexiglass wall. It looks like the it looks like hockey boards, and I got to hold my items up. And the the kind woman, not kindly, but kind woman behind the the screen scans them. Although maybe she's the manager and she should get a clue and take the plexiglass down. I don't know. May, you know, she can be kind, but not very, uh, not very science based. Okay, there's that. But this was bound to happen. I think we realize that. I think we get that. Can this encourage vaccination for parents and kids? Well, I guess so. And I'm a firm believer that these, uh, this variant is not going to elude the vaccine. There's been no. What are we? 10, 11 days in since we've been talking about it. Since it was revealed, we're probably 20 to 25 days in towards the actual existence of it i would argue in north america an epidemiologist told me last night uh that this has probably been in canada and the u.s since early november he described it as remembrance day remembrance day was almost a month ago 
but we didn't know what it, we didn't know it was any different than Delta, and we didn't know the makeup of it. So now we do, and we're able to look and determine, well, that's Delta, that's Omicron. Does that make sense? So Precious Blood was closed to in-person learning in early November. They found 13 COVID-19 cases. I agree. That's an outbreak. You should send everybody home. They should be able to come back very quickly within 48 hours with a negative test, and, uh, and especially if they're fully vaccinated and showing no symptoms whatsoever. I think parents know by now not to send their kids back to school with COVID symptoms, not to quote-unquote play hurt. We were doing too much of that with schools, I think. Um, because kids were getting sent to school because they didn't want to get sent home arbitrarily for 14 days. People, men and women, were going into essential workplaces, quote-unquote, playing hurt and bringing sickness to the workplace. Not awesome. I don't blame them if their paycheck was on the line, but we know a little bit better now, and there's a few more safeguards in place. But just to keep you aware of that, a case at Precious Blood Catholic School, it's not worth freaking out over. It's not worth getting all shrill and hysterical. But I say that, and people will. I think we're well aware of that. Okay, we're not emphasizing the positive because we have to. Uh, we're emphasizing the positive because, well, the news is more positive. It just is than 11 days ago. A lot of the fear, rumor, speculation about Om- Omicron. Um, this is what it's looking like on the ground in South Africa. The BBC reporter uh, there notes 8% of COVID-positive Hospital patients in Gauteng province, where it spiked and went a bit bonkers, the positivity rate and the cases, remember their cases, are being treated in intensive care units. That's down from 23% throughout the Delta wave. 2% are on ventilators, down from 11%. These are positive signs. Richard Friedland is the CEO of the country's largest network of private health care providers in South Africa. He says, it's early days, but I'm far less panicked. It feels different to me on the ground. This is a relief. Of course it is. Are we due for a break? Yes. But but the science doesn't care about the uh, statistical odds of whether you've had the coin flip go against you uh, constantly or not. So we need a break here, but we may get one. We may. Vaccination's a big key factor in this. Dr. Zane Chagla, infectious disease specialist, our guest. We always love having you on. Uh, you were a great guest with Mercedes Stevenson on the West Block on the weekend. Thanks for making time for our listeners today. No problem. Thanks, Greg. When I lay out some of that stuff, um, I hope... I hope the logical person starts to breathe a little easier day by day. I thought last a week ago, Friday was was a terrible day. It was a terrible day for our emotions, our mental health. I'm not sure all the coverage um, across the planet was responsible media coverage. I think we're in a better place 11 days later. Do you? Yeah, absolutely. Like this data is very preliminary, and, and again, it's uh, it has to be interpreted with this grain of salt. That being said, South Africa has had devastating beta and delta waves, so we mm-hmm. do have some some baseline to say that they've struggled with COVID just like all of us. Um, but you know, you know, there is at least reassuring data from a population that probably has a decent amount of herd immunity or immunity from natural infection that it's not leading people to come to hospital in droves. And the, the percent positivity, the amount of people in Gauteng that are positive, you know, probably is, you know, a, a sizable absolute percentage of the population, not just a percent positivity for testing, like literally probably 5 or 10% of people in that region are probably testing positive, given the numbers we're seeing. And, you know, again, that's at least a reassuring sign that you're not seeing a healthcare calamity. It still needs to be a couple of weeks later to see whether or not that holds out. Um, but, you know, we're not seeing you know, necessarily that, that dimension of, of uh, healthcare utilization, which is, you know, all I worry about with this coming to Canada more than anything else.
Well, yeah, the ball's going in the right direction down the field, uh, but it, it this takes time. This still takes time and more real-world data um, for us to gain confidence that we're we're going to be in a good place with this. Now, that said, I, I think about two things. One is is it's it's not much different than how we all felt when we got vaccinated. I think we realized early days. Now, I'm just not sure that we've done an awesome job, maybe just an okay job of this messaging, but the vaccinations are meant are meant to protect you from illness or severe illness. They've never been able to guarantee that you won't test positive. I think parents of kids, teenagers, and, and the younger kids getting vaccinated now, and that's great, are starting to realize that also, that this the vaccine is not a, hey, you're guaranteed to test negative for the rest of your existence. We have to, we have to make that point. Yeah, absolutely. Look, you know, again, if we can spare our healthcare system, if people's COVID ends up being a cold at home, you know, that's a win, right? Considering yeah. we had nothing two years ago and, and we're going into this thing, every case had a percentage of landing in the ICU. You know, we have different gradations of cases now. We have fully vaccinated cases where a few of them, you know, within, in the U.S., the mean age is 73. The mean age of death of a fully vaccinated person is 80. Not to say that's uh, a bad, uh, that's uh, that's terrible. But, you know, again, it, it, there is a certain population that breaks through and it's not a high percentage. Um, you know, that's, that's a win, right? And, and I think we have to kind of keep that in context that, uh, you know, there are certain people that will test positive after vaccine. Many of them will have an uneventful recovery at home with new medications coming down the pipeline. We can guarantee that more. Uh, and, you know, the goal needs to be how do we live with this virus long term and, and not kind of do sweeping changes that, that you know, are, are not necessarily sensical in terms of a plan. I think you nailed it. I, I really do, because I think if I if I were to utter the phrase, I'm worried about Omicron, what I'm worried about is it hitting vaccinated people or unvaccinated people, rather, and um, our, our hospitals getting overwhelmed again, much as they were in the early spring. But that's but you have to have context to the sentence, right? I'm not worried about it for my own health as a fully vaccinated person. I'm not worried about my boosted, you know, parents in their 70s and Omicron. I'm worried about the unvaccinated flooding our healthcare system. That's that's a different worry than than everyone's personal safety, I suppose. Yeah, I, I and I think again that's been lost in translation in the yeah. last couple of years. We've been, you know, again flattening the curve. We've been trying to do everything to prevent ourselves from getting COVID. Uh, and then all of a sudden we got the vaccines and it gave us an ability to live our lives like normal. Again, there was no guarantee. Many of us knew this was not going to eradicate the disease from the face of the earth. It took decades of a smallpox campaign with the vaccine to get it off the face of the earth. The only pathogen that's been eradicated, you know, so, you know, we, we were never, you know, selling this as saying the world is going to suddenly disappear with COVID altogether. Yes, it's going to circulate. Yes, people are going to get minor illnesses. But it's not going to be this healthcare overwhelm. It's going to be a disease that's mitigatable in the community. And again, you know, I think with Omicron, as you said, this message has been lost and people are now seeing that their ability to get, you know, a post-vaccine infection uh, is now higher than ever before. And, and, you know, again, separating that moral injury from the fact that they'll probably do fine uh, is, is really difficult now. And, and uh, again, is, is unfortunately influencing policy. I give you um, a lot of credit personally, professionally, because I think you would you would come on with me and you would talk about what's deemed acquired immunity uh, before a lot of other people did. I wish. Look, I, I can't I can't make it happen. You can't magically wave a wand and make it happen. 
I wish public health officials talked more about it. I don't think they do. I wish government officials, health ministers talked more about it. And I don't think they do. But it's a thing. And I also I, I talk about the you know, you've talked about the oral pills as well and what they're going to do. I'm glad it made the cycle, the news cycle yesterday, that there's going to be a manufacturing plant in Whitby, of all places, that's going to make uh, these pills for Merck. These are these will change the game and let us live with this virus. Yeah, I mean, we've been treating patients with monoclonal antibodies. St. Joe's in Hamilton is actually given the most in Canada to make sure, again, people don't end up in a hospital, even if they're unvaccinated and get the virus. Um, you know, having more of oral options, the Merck pill, the, the Pfizer pill, uh, there's a couple of other, even generic medications being looked at. You know, again, if we can mitigate, if we can build systems to make sure patients are treated, that we can give customized care to patients to prevent them from ending up in hospital, and again, keep this disease as a community infection, like we do with influenza, you know, again, that's a, a big win for us. And again, that's probably as good as it's going to get. Like, I don't think, mm. again, without a better vaccine platform, without more sterilization, without the ability to distribute to every kind of corner of the earth without necessarily hoarding it in certain countries, we're going to be out of this problem in the next six months or a year. But we can certainly kind of get back to normal life. We can have our interactions. And again, we can use our tools to make sure our healthcare system isn't overwhelmed. Um, I've seen you on, uh, you've talked to me on the radio enough and I've seen you on, on TV enough to know, uh, you know, you're level headed. And, and the concept is give people data, give people, you know, the background of, of, uh, of where all this is going, whether it's been in a good direction, whether it's been sliding in a bad direction, but I've seen a lot of emotion from you about the travel ban. Um, when this happened on Friday, when Canada reacted so swiftly, so quickly, uh, limiting travel, not just to African countries, but not allowing people and a lot of Canadians as well, a lot of our citizens who are stuck in terrible travel scenarios right now, it, it, it made you feel a certain way, didn't it? Yeah, it hurt. Like, and, and, you know, again, this is different than March of 2020 when we had zero tools other than contact tracing. We didn't have testing. We didn't have anything. And so, yeah, we tried our best to use travel. And we learned very quickly that, you know, that could only mitigate things for a couple of months before, you know, stuff ended up on our soil and we, we dealt with it. But this is very different. We, you know, we understood what happened in March of 2020, where most of our infections came in from the United States. They didn't come in from South Africa or China at the time. Um, and, uh, and, you know, again, we, we, we were encouraging people to travel. We live in a diverse society. We have family members that are, you know, across the world and people have been separated for years. And then all of a sudden, at the drop of a hat, we make a decision to stop travel to a region of the world that discovered that this virus variant exists discovered it actually was circulating on their soil well before places like Belgium and the United States actually identified they had cases that predate when the South Africa ran the alarm. You know, again, you know, it just seems like we're going down this pathway of, you know, just, just sledgehammer actions to try to get control without missing the point here. Yes, we can use enhanced testing at the airport. I think that's a reasonable idea and it should be prioritized. But again, if you're going to think that your solution is stopping 10 countries from coming over the border when we're seeing community transmission all throughout Europe, and again, I would be much more worried about the places that aren't showing community transmission because they probably can't detect it. Yeah. Um, you know, it, 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 again, it doesn't make any sense. And it, 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 there is human consequences. We're hearing about people stuck in hotels. We're hearing about people that can't get to connecting flights. We're hearing about family members in South Africa that want to come back to Canada to see their ailing relatives. Uh, and all of a sudden, we threw that into limbo for the sake of, 
you know, us being feeling like we're doing something where, you know, there's a human toll without necessarily the infection prevention that we want out of this. It sounds bonkers that all that's happening and I could drive across the border, uh, Dr. Chagla, tonight. I could uh, be full. I'd be fully vaccinated, but I could go in a maskless environment with however many other thousands of fans want to watch the Buffalo Sabres play. They haven't been very good lately, so maybe not that many thousands, but whatever. <laughs> I could go to a Buffalo Sabres game without proof of a test. They Nobody at the border would know if I was positive or not. Nobody at the border coming back would know, and I could go anywhere I wanted to the very next day in downtown Toronto. What yeah. What's more harmful to the potential of a spread of a variant, me or somebody coming back from these countries? It's bonkers to think I could do that, and the ultimate in, in travel hypocrisy, really. Yeah, absolutely. And again, you know, the U.S. is a great example. We have billions of travel events in the U.S. We have maybe, you know... And a hundredth of that in terms of Southern Africa. So even if there's a small amount of Omicron in the United States, but the number of sheer number of travelers is that much mm-hmm. higher, you know, it's going to come into the U.S. And again, we have evidence. We looked in genetically. There's a great study up in Quebec that really showed that, you know, spring break in Quebec and the United States was the reason why Quebec got seeded with the original COVID-19. It was not China. It wasn't Bergamo, Italy. It wasn't Iran. It was the the country that we visit the yeah. most that was our issue, right? And so, again, if we're going to make these policies, we have to make them consistent in order to prevent infection. If we're just doing this for optics, again, there's a human toll of this that isn't necessarily amounting to us delaying Omicron from circulating uh, if it's going to come in through the U.S. if we ignore it. And people like you pointing out that the optics are really lousy is, is helpful. Believe me. Thank you for doing that. Dr. Zane Chagler, our guest, thank you again for making the time uh, for our listeners. It's always appreciated. You always bring it. Thanks again. No worries. Take care, Greg. I never want to let this story fall by the wayside, and I'm not sure you can do it enough, uh, but there is movement traction now. But is it real traction? Should we be skeptical about that traction? Yesterday, Canada's Crown Indigenous Relations Minister Mark Miller says the federal government will put out a volume of residential school records. There's two things I've wanted, and I think most people have since early spring. That's the residential school records, and that's some element of accountability that if we're looking for people who perpetrated acts of, well, murder and uh, lesser crimes at these schools in these awful circumstances, we need to know who they are. And we need to know if they're still alive. And you won't get a politician, to be honest, by the way, to talk about that on the record. I've tried. I've I've asked some of the the people most vocal about this, but I haven't been able to get there. And uh, but I think it's important to ask the question anyway. Lori Campbell is associate VP of Indigenous Engagement at the University of Regina. She's a great guest and we're very, very pleased uh, to welcome uh, her back. I think you were on the show a couple months ago with me and so many people enjoyed hearing from you. So I'm glad you're making time again for our audience today. Thanks for having me, Greg, and thanks for always, you know, providing coverage on some of these really important issues. Oh, a hundred percent. Are you are you approaching this sort of glass half empty, glass half full? You want to believe there's transparency. You want to believe that maybe the documents that the government releases aren't the ones they think are maybe the least harmful. What's your perspective on it? Yeah, I mean, I I think that's exactly it. Is you know, there, there's calculated risk in um and in, in larger strategy and in the way everything plays out and so yeah and so i think you know this is just what they've uh, established at this point that they can um be let out in this way that is going to cause the least harm uh for them and um and and i guess it's like the overarching question to me is if it, you know they, they they're saying that you know they have a moral obligation to re- release some of the documents 
like, I, I guess there's no morally obligated reason to release all of the documents. Like, what does that even mean? Yeah, that's a factor. And I would guess the amount of time that's passed by when we look and say uh, the first residential school, quote unquote, discovery, even though people like yourself and countless dozens of people have said this is what happened and we need to you know, open our eyes and ears to it. But we're still talking about seven months since it really swamped the news cycle in uh, in Kamloops and in Saskatchewan. There's been a lot of time to sanitize potentially these documents and that worries people. Yeah, no, and, and I think it rightly should because, you know, again, and you've probably heard me say this before, but past behavior best predicts, you know, future behavior. And there has never been anything that has been entirely transparent about, um, you know, the real history of residential schools. And, and you know, and, and earlier we also said, like, this this isn't just an Indigenous issue, right? This is this is an issue for, like, Canada. Like, every Canadian should be demanding um, the release of these documents to be put back into Indigenous uh, oversight and to be made uh, available so that everybody can learn. And, and, and I do think there is also the, you know, the, the, the side of, of uh, you know, if we wait long enough, then, um, you know, then everybody who was involved, you know, may have already passed on. And uh, I, don't, I don't think that's the right reason to hold off on this. You know, everybody needs to know the real history. Everybody needs to know, you know, who were their relatives that worked at these schools and, and how are they implicated in them? If we really want to work at reconciling um, our generation alongside one another, we all need to know um, you know, our histories and connection to the residential schools. Laurie Campbell is our guest on uh, Global News Radio Toronto today um, on 640 Toronto. I, I, I would make the case too, I suppose, that that can be closure for some people who are, um, who, who did have relatives at these schools or who needed to know more. I, I might have told you, I had a conversation with my parents about it who both taught and they were kind of blindsided by this news and they felt bad and felt guilty knowing more information and details kind of that leads to closure on a lot of fronts for people, regardless of what of their of their skin color, regardless of their uh, part in this in this uh, shameful history. It does. It does. It, and, and that's why I say, like, again, this is an issue for everybody in Canada. You know, everybody needs to um, it, it needs to be full transparency on what did occur. And uh, I think it will bring healing to our communities, but I think it will also impact um, you know, like we've seen certainly, you know, with, with the, the public discovery of the uh, recent grave sites, it will um, have impact on other people in Canada who, uh, you know, many who I talk to who want to do things differently now. They, they, they uh, you know, they are at a point where they're realizing that um, some of the things they maybe heard before but didn't really think were true are, are indeed true. And I see them behaving differently. And so if we really want to create, um, you know, a, a more positive future for uh, everybody in Canada alongside one another. This needs mm. to happen. Lori Campbell's our guest. Uh, the Pope is still scheduled to travel to uh, Canada. That surprised some at the time that that was going to transpire. Um, it's not It's not for me to say. I know what I would want. I think I do uh, in terms of accountability. Um, and this, if there is an apology, it's long overdue. Um, is, is that as important to someone like yourself and, and others uh, as as the level of accountability for actual Canadians here? Um, do people care if there is an apology or not? Is it closure in that department? Yeah, so, you know, speaking for myself, for me personally, it's not um, something that's very impactful. However, I do know that there are many Indigenous peoples in our communities um, who, uh, having a formal apology, 
uh, would be very um, uh, helpful for them and, and uh, would be very, you know, they very much would feel seen if they were to get that. And so for that reason, I do think it is necessary. But again, you know, what I'm more interested in is, is also, you know, them, um, you know, coming out with full disclosure by the Catholic Church, you know, like um, delivering on the, the rest of the money, the millions of dollars that they were supposed to deliver on to help support uh, Indigenous uh, residential school um, healing. And, uh, and again, the, the files, I mean, also just most recently, too, it was brought mm. to our attention, right, that, that some of the files were, got, were sent over to Rome. Yeah, that was awfully that was awfully concerning, wasn't it? It's like why we can't get access to these whatsoever. Why would they be sent to Rome, Italy, to the to the Catholic Church to to again to go through and potentially sanitize them? It's greatly concerning. Absolutely, and 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 even that some uh, some mm. them, uh, somebody said that some of them have even been um, thrown out, the ones that have been deemed to be not you know not uh, worthwhile in keeping. But you know, when the question comes to, comes to mind is like which indigenous peoples made the decision that, uh, you know, what to throw out and what, what to not, and it, it didn't happen that way, right? And so we still have the Church uh, making decisions about us, uh, without us. Laurie Campbell uh, joining us from the University of Regina. It's such an important story. I thank you for your perspective on it, and uh, let's not wait as long, because I, I, I want to keep this in the cycle. I know how busy the news cycle gets, and, and I don't want us falling down um, at this radio station talking about this. It was very important to us in the summer to uh, to show up and allow people to be seen and be heard, and we've got to keep doing it. Thank you so much, Greg. You bet. Laurie Campbell uh, joining us, Associate VP of Indigenous Engagement at the University of Regina. Marcus Kolga from the McDonald Laurier Institute is uh, an international world award-winning documentary filmmaker, journalist, and more. And I'm sure his eyes are focused on a Biden-Putin meeting today. Marcus, it's great to have you on. It's been a while. You're a popular guy, and you're on a lot of shows here, but I appreciate you coming on the morning show as always. Thanks for having me on, Greg. I'm looking forward to our chat. Yeah, we're watching this really carefully today. Um, There's, uh, you know, we've got eyes on China clearly uh, with the Olympics coming up, and they have uh, made a veiled threat, as they often do to the United States after the uh, diplomatic boycott yesterday. I know uh, you love talking Olympics with me, too, so we'll get there. What are the the baseline expectations today for a Biden-Putin summit? What will they talk about? Look, what's happening right now geopolitically is that Vladimir Putin, since 2014, uh, has been uh, working towards trying to intimidate Ukraine and uh, and bring it back under uh, Putin's umbrella, uh, as it was in the Soviet Union. Uh, and since that time, there's been a you know a simmering uh, conflict in a section of eastern Ukraine known as Donbass. The the, the Russian government agreed to a ceasefire in, in 2014, but has never respected it and has since then continuously, almost every day, been shelling uh, civilian positions, uh, Ukrainian um, army positions. And uh, over the past uh, 12 months or so, we've seen a rapid escalation, a military escalation uh, to potential conflict by, um, by the Russians. They have amassed some 115,000 troops on Ukraine's borders. Uh, they've uh, added uh, all sorts of heavy uh, military weaponry, uh, artillery, tanks, and such. And there is serious concern uh, amongst Canada's allies that, um, that Vladimir Putin has shifted from what was a, um, you know, offensive defensive position to a purely offensive position and is ready to mm. uh, set his troops onto Ukraine 
in, at some point in the in the coming weeks. So what we need to see today on that call is Joe Biden um, setting some uh, serious consequences for Vladimir Putin, both for this um, saber rattling, this intimidation that he's engaging in, but also, uh, you know, should he decide to invade Ukraine uh, to make sure that uh, Putin understands that the Western world, NATO, is standing together uh, in support of, of Ukraine and that those there will be very significant costs, maybe sanctions or otherwise, uh, if he does decide to invade Ukraine. So today is this phone call is, is critically important, not just for Ukraine, but I think in the larger geopolitical security context, it is one of the most important calls of the, the past years. Feels that way. Marcus Kolga, the excellent Marcus Kolga, guest on Toronto Today with Greg Brady, Global News Radio 640 Toronto. It's a Biden-Putin high-stakes uh, video call. It's a video call, I should point out, 10 o'clock today. Um, that Yeah, words will be one thing. What's legitimate? Uh, what's a legitimate phrasing for uh, for President Biden? Uh, he described very real costs, quote-unquote, yesterday. Um, what could those be that manifest themselves? I mean, we're not talking ground troops versus ground troops, but uh, NATO forces, U.S. forces could uh, align and try and protect Ukraine. That's not impossible. Uh, well, going back to your first point, uh, yeah, you know, Biden and the Western world need to move beyond just words, because that's a lot of what we've been doing, uh, you know, since 2014, that first invasion of, of Ukraine, and it really hasn't um, been too effective in, in stopping Vladimir Putin. Um, sanctions are one thing that we can do, and hard-hitting sanctions, ones that target Vladimir Putin's inner circle, these oligarchs, and some people call them kleptocrats, that uh, enable him to remain in power, uh, many of whom act as Vladimir Putin's personal pursers. Um, there's a group of about 10 or 15 of these individuals who, um, who hold his money, essentially, and who have, over the past 20 years, let's be frank, um, robbed Russia blind. Um, at the top of that list, uh, you know, in the Canadian context, um, is a gentleman named Roman Abramovich. He, uh, was oh, named, the uh, Chelsea people. owner. Well, wow, let's talk about him, yeah. Yeah, I'd love to talk about him. Yeah, he, uh, he's at the top of Alexei Navalny's uh, list of oligarchs to be targeted. Alexei Navalny, of course, is the uh, crusading anti-corruption uh, activist who was uh, who was poisoned uh, last summer and has since he returned to, to Russia in December and has since been detained in a in a in a Russian gulag. Uh, he published a list, and Roman Abramovich was at the top of that list of oligarchs to be targeted. He, as you mentioned, is, is, of course, the owner of Chelsea Football Club, the storied uh, British uh, soccer, uh, soccer team. Uh, but Roman Abramovich, interestingly enough, has about four to five steel processing plants in Western Canada. So Mr. Abramovich actually holds and has stashed away tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars in assets in this country. He is at the top of Navalny's list. And he is considered to be the closest oligarch to Vladimir Putin. Targeting someone like Abramovich with sanctions would be extremely painful for Vladimir Putin. Just the threat of those sanctions would be extremely painful. And you can go down this list of, like I said, 10 to 15 oligarchs. If you threaten them with sanctions, that's directly threatening Putin's own wealth. And I bet you, you would see a change in behavior. There are other measures as well that, that uh, the West mm -hmm. could take. Um, there's been some discussion about uh, Joe Biden threatening to pull 
Russia's access to the SWIFT international banking system that would uh, bar Russian banks and Russian businesses from uh, from uh, from uh, transferring money abroad and doing business abroad. That would be extremely painful. Another uh, measure that's being suggested is is banning any sort of transaction, Western transaction, in the Russian bond market, uh, limiting Russia's ability to lend any money uh, abroad. Uh, so these are, are potentially painful uh, consequences for Putin. But the one thing that we really could be doing, as you mentioned, is is sending support, uh, sending additional troops to Ukraine uh, and sending a signal to Putin that we are standing with Ukraine. We're standing with and supporting their aspirations to become a democratic Western European nation. Um, and that can only be done with troops, with hardware. Um, it doesn't mean that we need to engage if Russia should invade. But mm. to help the Russian uh, Ukrainian forces train and to be capable uh, to withstand and, and resist any sort of invasion, that's a, that's a, a very important point. And the Ukrainian government is asking us for that help. I got about a minute here, but is Putin just as popular, Marcus, as he might have been? I, I don't know a year ago at this time. He's jailed political opponents. He's purged any sort of you know free speech or or any sort of you know group think that 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 compels itself to push against him. And and he's obviously there's no free press there. There's no free and fair elections. It's not a democracy. Or is he just as it as it is paid up with the right people and he's got he's purchased enough power that it really doesn't matter what the average russian thinks of him no you've got it greg listen the, his polling numbers uh over the past two years have really tanked um uh alexei navalny the 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 anti-corruption crusader that i who i mentioned before he's very popular and his jailing the poisoning of of him um didn't do uh, any good for putin's uh, popularity ratings uh, wages are declining. COVID is is just rife in that country. There's a major demographic crisis that's coming because of COVID. Uh, all of this has meant that his uh, popularity sunk below the 30s. Um, and we've seen what's happened before. When Vladimir Putin's popularity tanks, um, he lashes out abroad. He did this mm. in 2014 by invading Ukraine. That's uh, my real concern in all of this is is that that signal, mm. those numbers could lead to uh to a real shooting conflict uh, into which uh, the West might be drawn eventually. I know you'll be watching with close interest. I, l- I love uh, Russian politics, uh, the good, the bad, the ugly. I'll be watching too, and, and uh, let's chat again about it real soon. Thank you for coming on our show and uh, enlightening our listeners. Anytime, Greg. Thanks for having me on. Um, I got a text from a listener. We were talking about the 5 to 11 mandate. That's what it is in New York City. And uh, Tracy writes me and says, Norway announcing they'll take the same approach as Finland for 5- to 11-year-olds. They're only going to offer the vaccine to kids with severe underlying conditions. I know that I know that makes some people... Remember, we, we, we delineate between some and many, and uh, uh, that makes some people upset. Upset. But again, um, we have broadened the definition of who an anti-vaxxer is. I don't believe in a mandate for 5- to 11-year-olds. I don't. I said it from day one. I think the vast majority of, of people agree with me. What would you think? But here's let me let me play the uh, Bill de Blasio clip. Here's the Bill de Blasio clip explaining what they're trying to do by I, I, have, I have less of a problem with the private workplace mandate because that's adults gathering and convening in conference rooms and walking past each other in the hallways. And yeah, if we're going to get the masks off, by the way, we probably need vaccinated workplaces. OK, here's what he says. Vaccines came and we focused on vaccination and made all the difference. We're now the safest place in this country, but we gotta go even farther. 
Omicron's here, winter's coming, we gotta go even farther. Today in New York City, we announced a mandate. All private sector employers must have their employees vaccinated by December 27th. This is what's gonna keep us safe. This is the kind of thing we need to do now, not just here, but everywhere, so we can leave COVID behind once and for all. Okay, look. <laughs> You're trying. He's trying, but that you can imagine. I I cringe a little bit at the ending. We're going to leave COVID behind once and for all. You must know something I don't. You must know something every epidemiologist and infectious disease specialist says. Again, there's the city of Toronto obsessed with getting to ninety percent, and I hope that they do. I want. I'd love it if everybody was vaccinated. I'll say it. But you can't make people do it with their healthy five and six year old kids in Ontario. Honestly. Honestly, there's a real wait and see approach. I didn't think we'd get to even 50% of five to 11 year olds vaccinated by say next spring. And I'm not still sure we're going to, so they can, I'm not against the concept again. Why do I have to keep justifying this to people? Uh, Anthony Fury joins me from the Toronto sun of all the things in the universe. You and I probably could like march down young street with banners and, and, and uh, agree upon. It's probably this. I can't believe John Tory, Eileen DeVilla, Stephen Del Duca thought this was solid political capital to force vaccinations for five to 11 year olds to go to school or go anywhere else. Yeah, very interesting stuff, Greg. You know, it's interesting that just yesterday, uh, NACI, they sent out a revised recommendation where they said when it comes to Moderna for 12 to 29 year olds, we now think, you know what, we're looking at the data and you shouldn't be taking the Moderna. Now, Ontario and Alberta actually previously more or less came to that decision themselves. Ontario put it at the 24-year age mark there. So 18 to 24-year-olds no longer taking Moderna, a preferential recommendation for Pfizer. But I think that just shows us that as the months tick by, the experts look at the data related to various different vaccines. And over the months, when it comes to the younger catchments, there's none of this going on with the older catchments, but with the younger catchments, they continue to do the risk-benefit analysis. So what de Blasio is doing is so odd because the first dose for this vaccine has only become available for kids in the United States just a few weeks ago, just about 10 days before it became available here in Canada, and he's already bringing in the mandate. So I can see a lot of parents being unhappy. To clarify, I was saying things about Moderna and 5 to 11 is just a Pfizer vaccine, but it's a point of comparison that when it comes to the kids, and the information is always evolving. This is, and this is what I'm saying too. There's, uh, you know, I, I get a text and I'll read it to you. Uh, I agree with the points you make in regard to five to eleven. I will say your comments, though, seem somewhat hypocritical as we have older children being subjected to mandates. Okay. That's an opinion, but I would say there's more confidence 12 plus. There's more places kids go. The data skews differently. I think five to six-year-olds get more sick frequently. They're building up immunity in life. We know that. And my experience also, Anthony, is my goodness, we had forever what felt like forever as adults to um, address the idea as as meant. Most of us had our first vaccine five, six months before they said, well, you have to have it to go anywhere. The idea that you'd ask parents to vaccinate a five-year-old and say, you got two weeks to decide or no school, no indoor stuff, no gym, no daycare. Are you kidding me? I can't believe that that was con contemplated. No, it's a very good point. I mean, uh, we know seniors in, in Ontario were getting their vaccine in, in April and we didn't bring in the mandate generally until uh, until the fall. And people in their 40s, people in their 30s were getting it in May and June and so forth. There were many months until the mandate came into place. 
a completely different scenario with kids. I'll also say while the United States is ahead of Canada in many respects in a more evolved approach, de Blasio's doing something that we tried months ago and we've already seen whether or not there were pluses or minuses. And, and you're right to point out that de Blasio's saying at the end there, well, this will make sure we all get back to normal, bringing this mandate. Hold on a second. I mean, we heard from the business community in Ontario, people like Rocco Rossi at Ontario Chamber of Commerce and, and, and similar voices to him, supporting the vaccine mandate because basically they saw it as you bring in the mandate, it's a guarantee there will never be lockdown restrictions again. And that's a social contract deal we made. And yet here we are uh, with Omicron coming and the drumbeat of restrictions is happening. Now, it's not coming from the government. Dr. Kieran Moore saying, no, we don't think this is going to happen. But some of the usual suspects are already calling for this. So if you think that bringing the mandate will make people who automatically push for more lockdowns to suddenly go, oh, okay, fine. You know, I'm done. I'm never going to mention restrictions again. If you think that's going to make them go away, if that's what de Blasio's thinking, uh-uh, it ain't the case. That's my only, and that's my only warning for, for parents. I'm thrilled that they, I, I think mental health matters. So do you. And I think if, if this makes you a more confident parent, great. Sure. If it makes you a more secure household, if you feel safer visiting grandma and grandpa at Christmas, awesome. Yes, sure. vaccinate your kids. But but if someone said to me, why did you vaccinate your kids? Why did you do that in the summer? Uh, it's a it was a division between making sure they're safe and people feel safe around them. But it was also about getting their lives back. And I'd I'd challenge anybody go anybody who's getting a six year old vaccinated right now. And I should I, I would do that if I was them. But if you think you're getting your life back instantaneously within a couple months, Ask a fully vaccinated teenager what they can do right now that they could not do a year ago. And it's minimal. It's absolutely minimal at best. They're still wearing masks 35 hours a week. They still have to, you know, it, it is not it's not changing. And it's so rotten because when a lot of people said, well, why are we doing the 5 to 11? We heard Christine Elliott. We heard doctors on television say, so we can go back to normal. And I said, Great. So does that mean, is it after they get the first dose the day after or after they get the second dose that they get to take the masks off right away? Oh, well, um, uh, yeah, what rules are changing? You know, Greg, I've heard from a number of parents who say that they've gotten their their seven-year-old, nine-year-old vaccinated because they'd like to go on vacation, for instance, and they want the kid to not have to do the 14-day quarantine, miss two weeks of school right after they come back from vacation. I think that's a very uh, interesting and valid thing to say. But the parents also admit that they're not sure if that rule is going to change, and we have actually seen no indication it will. So there's actually been no mention of a single rule in our kids' lives changing after they do get vaccinated. A colleague of mine, I want to bring this up on uh, on calls after uh, after 8.05. A colleague of mine, uh, and, and you know him as well, Jason Chapman, who's our executive producer here, made the note, uh, he's on paternity leave right now, and uh, I think he's gaining some of his sanity back. It's a two-way, it's a... It's a double-edged sword. Um, I'd uh, I'd have another kid if it got me a year off right now. I would say that. Um, but he notes, here's the headline, Fauci says early reports encouraging about Omicron variant. And most of them are. And we were hearing this on right. the ground in South Africa. Look, we talked last week about what a week ago Friday, two weeks ago from this Friday was. It wasn't a great day. All of us felt a little worried, a little concerned, a little a little downtrodden. But if if there's more good reports than bad reports, are we getting this totally wrong in in our business, my business, your business, everything that meets in between that we're that that we're just we're kind of playing the if it bleeds it leads game? I want to get your read on that. 
Absolutely. There's the old joke that CNN, they love a natural weather event. They love a missing plane. They're going to cover it nonstop, regardless of how it does or doesn't affect your daily life. And the concern with COVID is initially first wave, second wave. It really was affecting our daily lives, or at least we weren't sure how it was. Now, where are we at? Are, are we at a place where we don't need to be this alarmist? But hey, it's working for that, that sort of cynical CNN, uh, let's only do the scary headlines. If it bleeds, it leads thing. Absolutely. I will say, speaking of individuals like Jason, people I know who have been traveling, I had a family member who was in the UK for a wedding just before the UK brought in their controversial mask mandate the other week. And one of the things that's so amazing hearing from people who go to the US, and I'm not just talking about Florida, I'm talking about everywhere, people who go to the UK, other countries, they come back and say, wow, they didn't talk about COVID. I said, well, what do you mean? How was COVID around there? They go, well, I don't know. It just kind of wasn't like there's a few rules. You got to do the testing after you get off the plane, but people are just not as obsessed about going on about COVID as we are here. Yeah. I mean, I, I had friends go out to the, uh, the Canada uh, World Cup qualifier in Edmonton, those two games at Commonwealth Stadium. And they said that I get that it's Alberta. I get that they haven't done everything right. I get they moved a little too quickly in the summer. But if you're a fully vaccinated household and you're a lot of that problem was among unvaccinated people and there's nothing a fully vaccinated household can do to run next door and vaccinate the household next to you. But those fully vaccinated households have gotten a lot back to normal than ours have. My, my nephews in New York State, I've told you this before, have done a lot more living with their existence in the last 15 months than my kids sure have. That's, that's not even close. Exactly. And when you look at the numbers right now, New York State, Massachusetts, they do not have the COVID rules we have. It's, it's far more minimal. In Massachusetts, there aren't statewide mask mandates. They have more cases multiple times over than we have here in Ontario. And yet, they're not freaking out. They're living their lives. They don't have a mandate for, for vaccines anywhere in that state either. And they're just living their lives. The way they talk about it is very different than we are. If we had the comparable level of case numbers that they had in Massachusetts, I got to tell you, people would be running around uh, like chickens with their heads cut off. Now, I got a, a little bit of time here for this, but uh, you know out there, and I think our listeners do too, There's a we found out about it yesterday. There's a document that got put out, a fake document that was calling upon the federal government to <laughs> quote unquote apprehend the unvaccinated vaccinated in Ontario and really ticked off about this, I guess maybe with good reason, our health minister, Christine Elliott and solicitor general, Sylvia Jones. It looks like it's a letter to Bill Blair and Jean-Yves Duclos, who's the new uh, Duclos, who's the new health minister, but it's, um, <laughs> it's a pretty, now that said, Sylvia Jones looked pretty excited in April to, uh, to stop random cars uh, until the cops <laughs> told her, until the cops told her they wouldn't do that. That was also one of our dark COVID days. She was, she couldn't wait to get that announcement out, but the letter looked really real, didn't it? Which maybe the, the matter, the more real the letter looks, the matter people get. It, it, it did. You know, I get a lot of emails. I got a lot of tweets sent my way. People say, oh, my God, look what the government's doing. <laughs> Here's this report of, of truly horrific vaccine side effects. And I look at it right away and I go, no, not true. This letter, you know, I got to hand it to the person. It was a professional job, which is why I think the government wants to find the person and charge them, because it looks like a, <laughs> an outright accurate forgery. I had to look at it twice. I had to look at it a couple times. I will say, Greg, as, as someone who does reporting and, and, and writing columns on on government overreach and the fact that, you know, yes, there are some concerns with the vaccines, at least when it comes to younger people. I do get so frustrated with these hoaxes because it, it makes it harder to actually do your job reporting on times when the government actually is 
doing overreach or when there are actually issuances from NACI about vaccine concerns. So when people are are making fabrications, it just makes people skeptical about everything. It muddies the waters in general. So I get really frustrated at uh, at seeing all these online antics. I'll say this. It looks a lot more real than the Ontario PC invoice they sent out in August. That was a fundraising letter. I mean... (laughs) <laughs> oh look i owe them four hundred dollars no you don't they would just like you to contribute four hundred dollars is a big i'm not sure there's ever been a full-on explanation about that maybe we can investigate that while we find out uh, who put this brilliant email together i gotta leave it there thanks so much anthony thank you sir all the best talk next week anthony fury toronto's son but what i see a lot from new york city people i must follow an unusual amount they document how there's no there's no traffic enforcement that the city is not as safe to walk down, to be in, in in all the boroughs, not as safe. And I've heard that constantly in Toronto from people that live in Toronto proper. I don't do quite the walks I used to do, and uh, and you're not out as much shopping and going to concerts, going to ball games, going to all that stuff yet. I mean, all that just came back a few months ago. But a lot of people have documented that it is a problem. Our next guest has done that as well and got a lot of uh, um, notation for a Twitter thread about middle of last month. Uh, but uh, I've heard the same thing from other people, so we wanted to have him on. He is Reese Martin. He's a Canadian transit and infrastructure content creator and analyst. That's a hell of a business card, Reese. But either way, thank you for coming on the show today. Thanks, Greg. Uh, great to be on. Would you say transit and uh, transportation is a is a passion of yours? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's it's been a passion for years and years, and uh, yeah. It's something I really enjoy. So when you laid all this out and you uh, you mentioned that you were going to tag uh, Councillor Mike Layden uh, on this, um, a real level of uh, of of, you know, of a lack of safety, frustration. I'm sure you've heard about this anecdotally from people that you work with, people that you know. And I've heard the same thing in that there's um, there's there's just an element of the quote unquote Wild West going on in Toronto with a lack of, of traffic enforcement and drivers. It can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Drivers seem to recognize that they've got that Wild West um, going for them. And so they take liberties and it puts it puts pedestrians in danger. You're spotting this, and you spotted this and wrote about it last month. For sure, yeah. Just a sense on the streets that people have stopped caring about, about you know, just the basics of driving, you know, looking where you're going and, and the like. I mean, I used to drive, so I'm pretty familiar with the basics, and I think <laughs> people are kind of uh, losing it. Is some of this, can I make the case, some of it is still, uh, I wouldn't call it a reluctance, but it's a slow you know, it's a it's a walk. It sure isn't a sprint back to use public transit, to ride the subway, to ride the go train. I'm, I'm a suburbanite, but I've taken the go train in. I feel great on it, but I know not everyone does yet. I see the parking lots at go stations and they're not they're not where they should be. Can I make the case there's just far more cars on downtown Toronto roads than there were, you know, pre covid two years ago? For sure, there definitely is. So I think that it's kind of all times of day. I, I often go walk out early in the morning, late at night when it's not super busy and people are still kind of driving crazily. What can we do about this? Where, um, like, what, what was that? What has been the response at all, if any, from the city's leadership? Because this is, you're not the first person to have brought this up, clearly. Well, <laughs> I did, as you say, tag uh, my city councillor, and I didn't hear much besides some some responses that uh, the city is doing lots to make make the city safer. I'm not sure, you know, there's 
it feels like a lot of it is more virtue signaling than actually taking action. You know, on the streets, where's where the police? Where's the traffic enforcement? Uh, I don't see it. So. I can't believe a government in this uh, day and age, Reese, would resort to virtue signaling. That just doesn't that doesn't sound like a government uh, in this day and age. Hey, is this about bikes or as much as it is pedestrians walking? Do you see it as an equal amount of both? We've obviously had battles and sometimes they go viral, sometimes videotapes and whatnot. But I've heard from many people who, who bike or cycle, whether it's for work, whether it's for leisure, that um, that it's more frightening than ever. But I, I, I wasn't hearing it as much from people walking on sidewalks and trying to, you know, go through crosswalks. And sometimes red lights just don't mean anything to people in Toronto anymore. I've seen it with my own eyes. Oh, oh absolutely. I mean, and it's it's people turning, I find a lot of the time. But with cyclists, you know, I see bike, I walk along Bloor Street fairly often, and it seems like where the bike lane doesn't have a barrier, people just kind of use it as parking. And uh, and I think, you know, I often, people ask me, oh, would you like to bike around the city? And I say, oh, yeah, it would be great. But, you know, I just don't think it would be safe. You're kind of taking your life into your own hands. Reese Martin's our guest, uh, Canadian Transit Infrastructure Content Creator and Analyst. Uh, it's interesting, too, because I think I think in the early days of, of COVID, we go back uh, 20 months ago, uh, I remember driving down the very first time, maybe a month into it, uh, Reese, I went and visited my parents in London, Ontario. So I'm driving down the 401 and thinking, this feels very like like Mad Max-esque, like, uh, like there were people zooming by me at 150K an hour. That's not an exaggeration. So I'm going to, you know, a more conservative, you know, 132, 134, and I'm still getting, and I'm thinking there is a little bit of a boldness and a brazenness thinking that's the last thing that a cop wants to do right now is stop somebody. We don't have a stay-at-home order at that point in time. So the last thing a cop wants to do is get involved in some kind of chase. Then lean into your your driver's side window and give you a ticket. We do see it sometimes now, but clearly I think the mentality still exists for the the drivers out there that I'm not going to get stopped. The cops have better things to do or they've been told not to do it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that there needs to be a real crackdown on on you know just dangerous driving and the like. I mean, if you're driving, if you're on foot, or if you're on a bike, no matter what the case is, I mean, it's dangerous for everyone. So let me shift to uh, to transit ridership. Do you think we'll get back to more normal uh, pre-pandemic levels in the city of Toronto? That it just it just makes sense. Not everybody downtown has a car. There will be a little bit of a a call to arms at some point in time, I think with a return to office and a return to more things that they can do in Toronto. Do you think we get back to normal with, with subway and, and go ridership? For sure. I mean, I think go will be slower because it is more of a nine to five commute oriented thing. So we're trying to fix that. I think in the city, but I think, you know, transit ridership will be you know dependent on getting back to the office. I'm on the subway every day and it's, it's fairly busy, but, you know, the, the buses and the subway aren't running as often, unfortunately, because we've kind of cut back service. So I'm just hoping to see more service and I think just give it time and people will come back. Brampton is doing better and they have more people back, you know, working. So I think we'll we'll see that, too. Hey, Reese, how's mass compliance on the subway? I'm curious. Uh, I would say it's it's fairly good. Ninety five percent. There's always a person or two when you're commuting who you see, but. There's no issues avoiding people who aren't wearing masks. Are you hoping that transit and the safety on the roads is, you know, we're going to have a, uh, a municipal election like 10 and a half months from now. 
I hope, and I'm sure you do as well, maybe maybe doubly what I hope it is, I hope it's a campaign talking point. And I don't mean a talking point like here's here's a slogan, here's, again, more virtue signaling. I hope practical things are done about this. It's it's a real chicken and egg thing because the police have to want to give you know proper tickets out and and judge and be judicious about where where and when they are. We can't we can we can only go so far, but clearly you're saying we got to go further than we're going right now. It's not safe. Oh, absolutely. And I think that it's not just police. It's a mix of things. I think that we've kind of shown that, you know, police alone isn't going to change things uh, in the past. And so I think, you know, those speed cameras that have been deployed, those are probably effective. I mean, I've heard I've heard good things, but I think that, you know, like 50 in the whole city is probably not doing very much. And I think the street design often is also a problem. You know, streets are designed super wide. They're just designed like highways in a lot of places and uh, people want to drive fast and it's just natural last quick thought when you when people go to uh, europe and and it's in some of the older cities but they're more modern invention inventions they've almost got those posts like they look like chess pawns but the goal is is that it it, it, it like a car could potentially that could be the stopgap between a car hitting a pedestrian um, we don't have a lot of that in the city of Toronto. We have some of them in front of Union Station, which is the weirdest thing on uh, Front Street, as wide as the sidewalks are. We probably need those things on more narrow sidewalks and more narrow streets. Like up, up and down Jarvis wouldn't be the worst place in the world for those. No, absolutely. I agree. I think it would be fantastic. And it would be it'd be great if we could get those jersey barriers in front of Union turned into something that looks a little more attractive. <laughs> Oh, now now you're being fussy. Now you're now you're just uh, now you're talking about aesthetics and not safe. But I get it. I get it. Uh, Reese, thanks for coming on and, and weighing in. I, I thought the, the thread was really, really interesting. And, uh, uh, you know, your stuff on this stuff. So I, I think it's great education for our listeners and, and gives them something to think about to ask their city councilor about. Thanks for making the time for me. Thanks, Greg. You got it. Uh, Reese Martin uh, joining us. Thanks for listening to Toronto today. It was great to have you in. We'll live show back Wednesday, December the 8th, uh, tomorrow morning at 530. Uh, again, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and share this podcast. We're very, very grateful that you listen. Thanks again. We'll see you tomorrow.